you for this gathering of believers to get, that we can gather together to worship you. I just pray you be with John now as he shares the message you've laid on his heart. Just help us to have open, open hearts, open ears to take in what you have laid on John's heart and to build up your kingdom. We just pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Good morning. Welcome to everyone this morning. Glad for what we've heard already this morning. Thank you, Thomas, for devotional. Very good. I'd like to start off this morning by asking a question. It may seem like a rather obvious question, and maybe the answer is obvious as well. The question is, what is the purpose of the Bible? Somebody got an answer. What's the purpose of the Bible? Now, there's, there's lots, of, lots of answers, so don't be scared. A couple I'm looking for, but I'm, I'm looking to hear you guys' answer. Nobody knows why we have the Bible. I'm sorry. Okay. To, to help us, yeah, relationship with God. Mal, you... Okay, understand God's will. Um, anybody else? Kevin. Okay. Good. It's a history book. All right. It's what? It did. Okay. You're getting closer. Okay. I kind of have two themes that I'm, I want to look at this morning. And the one is simply, as Thomas said, to tell us about God. Um, how else would we know God if we did not have the Bible? And the, uh, the second one is uh, salvation, um, the means to God. And like I said, the other answers are all correct, uh, but those are the two I was kind of looking for. Last Sunday in instruction class, we looked briefly at what the author of that book uh, calls the theme of the Bible. And those that were in instruction class probably saw it. But that theme of the Bible that he sees going through the Bible would be salvation through Jesus Christ. And he breaks that down into seven steps um, that are laid out in the Bible. The first is simply the need of salvation. And this is covered in the first 11 chapters of Genesis. And we know the events there, uh, creation, God created everything, including man. Man then disobeyed God. Uh, thus creating a separation between God and man. And where Adam and Eve once walked and talked with God as friends, after that separation, after sin, they became afraid of God and tried to hide from Him. But then along with their punishment of getting kicked out of the Garden of Eden, God also pro uh, promised a coming Redeemer who would provide a way for man to once again be reconciled to God. And Genesis 3 gives that account. I won't read it now. You can study it on your own there if you'd like to. Verse 15 gives the promise of the coming Redeemer. It's not super clear just by reading it, but that is what he is referring to there. So right away, in the first few chapters of the Bible, um, we are given the separation of man from God, and right along with that, then, the future solution to that separation. So we hear the terms redemption and reconciliation. Those are two common terms. 
um, both are spiritual terms, but they're also used elsewhere in everyday life as well. And if we look at how they're used elsewhere, I think maybe it helps us understand how they're used in the spiritual sense as well. I remember soon after we moved to New York here, I passed a redemption center. Now, those of you that live here know what redemption centers are. Um, I did not. I don't remember where it was, but I do remember it was a rather trashy-looking place. Um, certainly was not a church, and I soon learned what a redemption center uh, was. And the definition of redemption is simply to buy back, to redeem what was repurchased, what was once yours, and buy it back. And that is the purpose of those, is to, I guess, buy back something that has been uh, put a deposit on. So reconcile has a similar meaning as well. It's used in accounting. Um, everybody enjoys reconciling their checkbook, um, making all the little numbers come out right to where it's all right at the bottom again, making everything correct. So reconciling is bringing something that's out of order back into order and making it line up again at the bottom. <coughs> so those are two words I want to keep in mind, maybe a little more on that later, redeem and reconcile. The second step towards salvation in the Bible is called the channel of salvation. Now a channel as we know it, we think of like the Erie Canal, a channel is something that directs something from here to there. It, it, it's a means of, of making something go in a, a specific direction. Um, it has a def, definite beginning, definite end, and a definite path in between. So the rest, of Genesis, or the rest of the Old Testament, from Genesis 12 to the end of Malachi, outline, outlines God's plan, and it's essentially his channel towards the coming Messiah. Now along that way, along that channel, God gave his people many illustrations, many types, uh, examples to show them what the coming Messiah would look like. And just a couple of them here, we think of the exodus from Egypt, the blood from a lamb that they had to apply over their doors, and that blood um, protected them from the angel of death that came through that night and struck every household that did not have that protection. So that blood was a type, was an illustration, an example of Christ. Um, it, it showed them, I didn't realize it so much then, but in the future, then looking back at that, realized it was pointing them ahead towards the saving blood of the coming Savior. We think of Abraham, Isaac, uh, the ram God provided as a substitute the last minute, when Abraham was ready to offer his son Isaac, um, the idea of a substitute, something or someone taking our place, again, pointed ahead to a coming Savior. The story of Ruth gives an excellent example of redemption. Remember the story there, the family was separated, moved to a foreign country. They moved back, and as was their custom there, um, their land and stuff needed to be redeemed. Their family name needed to be redeemed. And Boaz redeemed their family name, uh, brought back that which was lost. And he brought their um, lineage back to its rightful owner, or whatever you want to call it. And again, an illustration of God's people being lost through sin and then being bought back. Look at the tabernacle. Um, God set up many elaborate rituals in the tabernacle that both signified and pointed ahead towards the coming Messiah. Uh, the tabernacle is one area that if you're going to study, I'd recommend you get yourself a study guide. Um, just reading through the account of the tabernacle uh, can be very confusing and doesn't really mean a whole lot unless you have someone who can walk you through that. 
And the proper person doing that can really bring out a lot of what is signified in that, and it can actually become very interesting. So that would be a study I'd recommend if someone is interested in history and in, in the way God used subtle details to point ahead towards other things. God also used the prophets to foretell the coming Savior. Uh, they gave precise details of future events, hundreds of years in the future, events that seemed unconnected, but eventually lined up exactly as was promised. So the entire New, oh, I'm sorry, the entire Old Testament was simply God pointing ahead to what He had planned, laying the groundwork, um, working through all these different means as as a way of pointing um, towards what He had promised in the New Testament. The third step was the 400 silent year between the Old Testament and New Testament. Now, the author of the book refers to this as the preparation for salvation. I mentioned this period a few weeks ago. Um, why did God use 400 years? Why was he largely silent for 400 years? I don't know. Um, I don't totally understand where all the preparation there came from. Um, but if we do jump ahead, the verse I used before, Galatians chapter 4, verse 4, we are told that God sent his son in the fullness of time, when the time was right. So obviously that did include that 400 years and there was a significance that 400 years that I don't understand completely now, uh, maybe never will, and maybe something we can add to our list of things to ask God someday. Why the 400 years? What all happened there? The fourth step is the provision of salvation. This brings us into the New Testament. Uh, Jesus' birth, the four Gospels, four books giving um, slightly different accounts of the same events. They agree with different perspectives, I should say of Jesus' birth, his ministry here on earth, and very, very clearly shows that Jesus was the one who had been prophesied from the beginning. So all this leading up to it. Now this is the actual event of salvation here. The book of Acts then gives the proclamation of salvation. This was the time when the church, as we still largely have it today, was formed. Uh, Men proclaimed the news of salvation near and far, and the church grew by percentages that have not been seen since. Um, it just grew and multiplied. God blessed it and as the, as the messages of, it, of salvation went forth. And then Romans through Jude gives the explanation of salvation. This is where we find much of our practical teaching for today on how God would have us to live in our everyday lives. A lot of um, Paul's letters there to the various early churches And if we read those, we see that they were normal people, just as we are, um, facing very similar issues to what we face today. Uh, Nothing nothing new, really, there. But Paul gives a lot of answers on uh, everyday issues, just practical applications of salvation there. The final step, then, the book of Revelation, is the climax of salvation. While the Old Testament pointed towards Jesus, who was the payment of our salvation, Um, We that are still here on earth have not yet received the full reward of our salvation. So Revelation points ahead to what that time will look like and how that will be. So we see the theme of salvation um, is central through the entire Bible from beginning to end. God reveals it, slowly fulfills it, prophesies it, and then helps us uh, understand how it works on everyday lives as well. Excuse me. Could I? Thank you. One of those, that time of year again here. So the question again is why? Why is salvation so important? 
Why is salvation necessary? Um, why is that theme throughout the entire Bible? Why does God put so much emphasis on um, salvation, the need for it? And as was mentioned, there's a second theme running through the whole Bible. I don't have an outline for this one, but it runs parallel to the theme of salvation. And that theme is simply God revealing himself to us. For the plan of salvation to make sense or even to seem necessary, one must have at least a basic understanding of God, of who he is, of what he says, and of what he requires. So the first part is kind of an introduction there, um, kind of quickly bouncing through the the theme of salvation, um, kind of coming to the idea of the need of it, and which kind of boils down to um, who is God, and why does he require salvation. If you would, turn with me to 1 Peter, the first chapter. So 1 Peter 1, uh, reading verses 13 through 25. Wherefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober and hope to the end for the grace that is to be brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, not fashioning yourselves according to the former lusts in your ignorance, but as he which hath called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation. Because it is written, Be ye holy, for I am holy. If you call on the Father, who without respect of persons judges according to every man's work, pass the time of your sojourning here in fear. For as much as you know that you are not redeemed with corruptible things, as silver and gold, from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, as a lamb without blemish and without spot, who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you, who by, who by him do believe in God, that raised him from the dead, and gave him glory, that your faith and hope might be in God. Seeing ye have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit unto unfeigned love of the brethren, see that ye love one another with a pure heart fervently, being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible, by the word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. For all flesh is as grass, and all the glory of man is a flower of grass. The grass withereth, the flower thereof falleth away. But the word of the Lord endureth forever. And this is the word by which the gospel is preached unto you. There's a lot in there. Um, the verses I kind of want to look at here are verses 15 and 16. But as he which hath called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation, because it is written, Be ye holy, for I am holy. So God is calling us here to be holy as he is holy. And maybe we should look at the definition of holy. Um, what does that mean? Lauren mentioned this morning. Um, instruction class that it means to be set apart. Um, it means to be set above. Um, holy is more pure. There's no evil in holy. Um, and God is calling us to simply be holy, live that, live that as he is. And we know that that is where then the need for salvation comes in. Um, for us to say that we are good enough, we are holy enough, to be like God uh, means we have simply not grasped the full extent of God's holiness. <clears throat> so for us to be accepted by God, for us to meet the criteria he lays out here, um, there needs to be a certain level of holiness that we simply cannot attain on our own. And that is why I believe these two themes run parallel to the Bible, that of the holiness of God, um, 
revealing God, and then also along with that, salvation and the means to which we can be justified to God's holiness there. So God is revealing himself to man because he desires to have us learn to know him, and he desires for us to have fellowship with him. But the holiness of God also prohibits him from tolerating sin. So on one hand, we have God's holiness, we have his desire to um, relate with us, and then in between we have sin separating us from that. So God in his mercy uh, made a way for sinful man to be holy as he is holy. Not through our own efforts, but through the work of his son Jesus. God created man, I believe, because he wanted someone both to fellowship with him and also to worship him. Um, worship is the subject of itself as well. Uh, he wanted us to choose to worship him. And worship um, is putting a value on something, is honoring, is glorifying, is, is putting a, a worth on something that we spend a lot of time with. So he wants worship for us as well. And so he needed to reveal himself in a way that men would see their own wickedness in contrast to his holiness and then realize that they had a need of salvation and that their only option to have their debt of sin reconciled um, in God's account was to have you know, the, the salvation take place there. So we, we use the word redemption because we literally have been we, uh, redeemed. We have been bought back from sin. Sin separated us. Um, there was a debt there. It needed to be bought back. Forgiveness is not canceling somebody's debt. Instead, it is paying that debt for them. And that's another subject in and of itself as well. Um, when Christ died on the cross, he did not cancel our debt. He paid it for us. The more we understand God's holiness the more we understand the need of our salvation. And the two are so closely connected that it's almost impossible to see one without the other. Now, numerous people, both in Scripture and since, um, have attempted to describe God's holiness. One quote that I read said that holiness does not describe just one attribute of God, rather it describes God himself. So the word holiness simply describes God as a person. Um, the two are, are inseparable. I've got a couple verses I want to read. Um, don't need to follow along necessarily. Um, Isaiah 57, verse 15. For thus saith the high and lofty one that inhabiteth eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place with him also that is of a contrite and humble spirit to revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite ones. Now here Isaiah is not just saying that the name of God is holy, which it is that too, but he's going so far as to say that holy, the word holy is God's name. And holy is actually capitalized as a name would be here. So holy is actually another name for God. Exodus 15, verse 11. Who is like unto thee, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like thee, glorious in holiness, fearful in praises, doing wonders? Second Samuel 2, verse 2. There is none holy as the Lord, for there is none beside thee. There is neither any rock like our God. 
So both these passages are attempting to simply describe the holiness of God and that it far surpasses anything or anyone else that could possibly meet up to it. It simply can't. It is so far beyond anything else that God, it puts God in a class by himself. God is totally without sin, therefore his holiness is beyond anything that has been tainted by sin. So all of our holiness, whatever, is all tainted by sin. God has been, is totally removed from that. When God ended creation on the sixth day, he said it was very good. Uh, up until then it was good, but on the sixth day it was very good. So creation at that point, for unfortunately a short period of time, still matched the Creator because it was still as perfect as He was. Everything that comes from God, His creation, His laws, His judgments, are perfect. And creation at that point was very good because it was yet perfect too. Um, James chapter 1, verse 17 Every good gift, every perfect gift is from above, and cometh down from the Father of lights, with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. So God is incapable of sending evil, He's of doing evil, or of ever changing. Um, he is held to His own rigid standard of holiness. I would like to look at three places in Scripture where a man directly encountered God's holiness. And I have a lot of verses, so just, just listen, not necessarily follow here. Um, Exodus chapter 34. Exodus chapter 34, verses 28 through 35. The setting here is when Moses went back up on the mountain the second time to receive the Ten Commandments. If you remember, the first time he came down and encountered um, the people engaged in idol worship, and he smashed the Ten Commandments. Now he went back up the second time again. So Exodus 34 verse 28. And he, Moses, was there with the Lord forty days and forty nights. He did neither eat bread nor drink water, and he wrote upon the tables of the words of the covenant the Ten Commandments. It came to pass when Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tables of testimony in Moses' hand, when he came down from the mount, that Moses knew not that the skin of his face shone while he talked to them. And when Aaron and all the children of Israel saw Moses, behold, the skin of his face shone and they were afraid to come nigh him. And Moses called unto them, and Aaron and all the rulers of the congregation returned unto him, and Moses talked with them. And afterward the children of Israel came nigh, and he gave them in, in commandment all the Lord had spoken unto him in Mount Sinai. Until Moses had done speaking with them, he put a veil on his face. But Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him. He took the veil off until he came out. And he came out and spake unto the children of Israel that which he was commanded, the children of Israel saw the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face shone, and Moses put the veil on his face again until he went in to speak with the Lord. So Moses spent over a month in God's presence on top of the mountain here. We don't know exactly what all happened during that time, but God apparently sustained uh, Moses' natural needs in a supernatural way, as it is not humanly possible to go without water for 40 days. Uh, food can be done, but not water. When Moses finally came back down again, his face bore the evidence that he had directly encountered the glory and the holiness of God. Um, his face shone. I've always been kind of curious how long that, that glow lasted. Uh, this time of year, we can certainly tell when someone comes back from the south, their face also kind of shows that. But within a couple of weeks, that already starts fading. 
And I had to kind of wonder, how long did it take for the work and worry of normal life to fade that godly glow off of Moses' face? I don't know, we're not told. Second place is um, Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah chapter 6, the first eight verses. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. Above it stood the seraphims, each one had six wings, with twain he covered his face, and with twain he covered his feet, and with twain he did fly. And one cried unto another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the post of the door moved at the voice of him that cried, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then flew one of the seraphims unto me, having a live coal in his hand, which he had taken from the tongs, with the tongs from off the altar. He laid it upon my mouth and said, Lo, this hath touched thy lips, and thy iniquity is taken away, and thy sin purged. And I also heard a voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then said I, here am I, send me. Excuse me. So here Isaiah had a vision. Um, God kind of cracked open the door of heaven and gave Isaiah a glimpse inside. And there's a lot here I won't try to explain. Um, there's a similar vision in the first chapter of Ezekiel, and it gives a lot more detail. Um, of some of the, the sights in heaven than what we see here. But I want to notice a couple of things here in Isaiah. <clears throat> in verse 3, the angels around the throne are saying, Holy, holy, holy. That's obviously where I got my title. The word holy is repeated three times. Now in Scripture, to repeat something is to give emphasis, to, to indicate there's uh, sit up and take notice. There's something important being said here. Jesus often said, Verily, verily. Um, he's saying, you know, this is doubly important. Uh, take notice of this. And here the word holy is repeated three times. Now, John isn't here to help me today, but I'm not aware of any other word anywhere in the Bible that was repeated three times for emphasis. Now, I could be wrong. I don't know. Um, but holy is repeated three times, a couple of places, and I think that's the only word that is repeated three times. So the magnitude of God's holiness... Um, is great enough to need to be repeated three times for emphasis. Uh, that's greater than anything else that, was, that is taught in the Bible here. So we see the two responses then of Isaiah. First he says, woe is me, for I am undone. Other translations say, uh, it's over, I, I'm doomed. I mean, in, in he immediately recognized his extreme unholiness when confronted by God's perfect holiness. Uh, great enough that he, he, he thought there was just simply no hope for him. In comparison, there was, there was just no way. Um, he was doomed. His second response then, after the angel had touched his lips, and this was symbolizing the removal of his sin and guilt, and he immediately offered himself unconditionally to whatever God would want him to do. Um, Here am I, send me. He didn't know what the assignment was yet, but he was already volunteering. 
So here we see God's perfect holiness in contrast to man's extreme holiness. We see the cleansing of man's sin, uh, purifying him, and then an immediate response following that, an eagerness to go and do whatever God asks of him. The third scene is in Revelation chapter 4. first 11 verses. Revelation 4. After this I looked, and behold, a door was open in heaven, and the first voice which I heard was as it were of a trumpet talking with me, and which said, Come up thither, and I will show thee things which must be hereafter. Immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne was set in heaven, and one sat on the throne. And he that sat was to look, like, look upon like a jasper and sardine stone. And there was a rainbow round about the throne, in sight like unto an emerald. And around about the throne were four and twenty seats, and upon the seats I saw four and twenty elders sitting, clothed in white raiment, and they had on their heads crowns of gold. And out of the throne proceeded lightnings and thunderings and voices. And there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. Before the throne there was a sea of glass like unto crystal. In the midst of the throne, round about the throne, were four beasts full of eyes before and behind. And the first beast was like a lion, the second beast was like a calf, the third beast had the face of a man, and the fourth beast was like a flying eagle. And the four beasts had each of them six wings about him, and they were full of eyes within, and they rest not day and night, saying, again here, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, which was and is and is to come. And when those beasts give glory and honor and thanks to him that sat on the throne, who liveth forever and ever, the four and twenty elders fall down before him that sat on the throne, and worship him that liveth forever and ever, and cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. For thou hast created all things, and for thy pleasure they are and were created. So this is a, uh, a scene set somewhere in the future. Um, it's part of a vision that was given to John about the second coming of Christ, along with the rest of the book of Revelation. Uh, a lot of symbolism here, if you want to go through it, um, the color of the stones, all of that um, symbolize things again. But notice again how unsettling the holiness of God is. Now back in Isaiah, he said the doorposts were shaking, there was smoke. Um, here, there is lightning, there's thunder, uh, voices, I don't know. Um, obviously, uh, there's a lot going on here. And again, in verse 8, we see beings of some kind that are doing nothing but acknowledging the holiness of God, uh, day and night, never stopping, on and on, um, in sets of three, holy, 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 um, on and on. So the ultimate in emphasis and importance, just going on continually. And they're giving that worship, they're giving that praise to God, the God who is worthy to receive all glory, and honor and power because he created it all. It's all his, and he created it for his enjoyment and for his pleasure. So these three scenes, and there's others that are similar, portray God's holiness in a way that we as humans have maybe a difficult time understanding, um, relating to. Uh, John and Isaiah were, were simply uh, struck down when they encountered that. And I believe that that is one of the reasons why Jesus sent his son to us, I believe for, uh, God sent His Son to us to reveal His holiness to us through His Son. Now, if we turn to Hebrews, 
chapter 1, the first four verses. God, who at sundry times and divers manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he hath by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high, being made so much better than the angels, as he hath by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. Um, So maybe a little plainer English, um, we could turn to John chapter 14. Uh, Verses 8 through 10. Philip saith unto him, talking to Jesus, Lord, show us the Father, and it satisfies us. Jesus saith unto him, Have I been so long time with you, and yet hast thou not known me, Philip? He that hath seen me hath seen the Father, and how sayest thou then, Show us the Father? Believest thou not that I am in the Father, and the Father in me? The words that I speak unto you, I speak not of myself, but the Father that dwelleth in me, he doeth the works. So Philip here was asking a question, um, show us what God looks like. And Jesus explained that he was sent by God to reveal God to the disciples, to the people, um, to man, if you please, in a way that man can understand it. So God's holiness in its raw form, if I may call it that, um, the form that we saw in those couple incidences, is simply too harsh for man to see. And only by Jesus being fully man while still being fully God was God able to, may I say, package his holiness in a way that you and I can relate to. Um, We have the life of Jesus here, um, and Jesus says a number of times that as he is, the Father is. You see one, you see the other. And yet, um, understanding and relating to Jesus' ministry is so much different than trying to understand the scenes that we read about earlier. Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit without sin. Um, In contrast, you and I were born with a sinful nature. He lived a sinless life. Again, he displayed the holiness of God in human form. And he died a sinless death. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For God made Christ, who had never sinned, to be the offering for our sin, so that we could be made right with God through Christ. So God's holiness requires justice. It cannot allow sin to go unpunished. There must be a payment made. Forgiveness does not erase that debt. It simply transfers away that payment to someone else. So Jesus took that weight of payment for our sin on himself, which then allowed God to offer us forgiveness because the debt was paid. So nothing exposes sin like a glimpse of God's holiness. Um, It's just simply a, a, a bright light, if you please, that just simply exposes everything. And Isaiah's response of woe is me is every man's response when we truly encounter the holiness of God. Sin becomes obvious with unmistakable clarity, and the contrast is just simply unmistakable. So my encouragement today is not just to study our sin, to try and understand how bad it is, but to compare ourselves to the purest holiness of God, and then allow God to cleanse us, and like Isaiah said, Here am I, send me. With those thoughts, let's stand for prayer. And we'll include a blessing on the meal, which I think is being prepared somewhere, and then remain standing for the closing song. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your word that you have given us. 
Thank you for how it shows us who you are, your greatness as well as your holiness. Thank you for sending your Son to earth and providing a way that we can be as holy as you are holy. We ask your blessing and protection from us in the, on us in the coming week. We also thank you for the food that's been provided, plus our time of fellowship as well. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Remain standing. Dwight, you have a song? <laughs>